So, when you die, because we're all going to die, when you die and you stand before Jesus and he asks you, why should you be saved? What are you going to say? Why should you get into heaven? What are you going to say? What do you think that your friend would say? What do you think that your roommates would say, your boss would say, your professors would say, the the average person on the street, what do you think they would say? Is it, well, I, I tried to live a good life? I think my good deeds, my good intentions, they outweighed my bad ones? Is it because of your theology? Is it because you were baptized? I remember my wife and I, when I was in grad school going to seminary, we were talking about this issue. And we were, uh, I, I kind of had a, I don't know, a weird spirit about it. I kind of like, oh yeah, I've been in seminary and I know this answer, blah, blah, blah. And I was talking and she asked me, well, what would you say? And I said, you know, I would say to Jesus, I should get into heaven because I know that I don't deserve to get in. Was I right? There's a, a recent Netflix documentary, maybe some of you have seen it, it's called The Staircase it's pretty interesting. It's also pretty heavy. There's a French film crew. They decided to document the story of an author named Michael Peterson, and he was accused of, of killing his wife. Fast forward to episode six. Um, he's gone through his trial. The prosecution has made its case, brought the witnesses up, brought the experts up. The defense has rebutted the case, brought their experts up, had their testimony, and the jury is getting ready to go into the room and deliberate. And Michael Peterson's lawyer He gets up before the jury, before they go into deliberations. He says, now, I want you to think about this. When you go back into that room and you deliberate and you come out, the words you say to my client will be the most important words that he hears. Most important words that he will ever hear. We're continuing our series through the New Testament book of Acts. It's written by the Apostle Luke to a a group of Christians in the first century. It's kind of part two of his gospel of Luke. And remember, the book of Acts, it's not written to us, but it's written for us. And tonight, these words that we hear in Acts chapter 15, they might be some of the most important words that we ever hear in our lives. Let's jump in, verse one. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they're in a city north of Jerusalem called Antioch. Is there a map here? No, there's not. It's okay. Uh, Antioch. There's a group of Christians came from Jerusalem, and it says the Jerusalem south. It says they came down to Antioch because Jerusalem is higher in elevation. So they had to travel down the mountain but up to Antioch. And they started teaching Christians in this area that in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. Now, in the Old Testament, circumcision was the outward physical sign of the invisible grace of being chosen or being saved by God and made to be a part of his people. This is the sign that you are a part of God's Old Testament people, all throughout the Old Testament called Israel. This practice had been in place up to this point for thousands of years, and then Jesus changed everything. If you were here last week, you heard Kyle, and he spoke about how the Apostle Peter went to the house of a guy named Cornelius. He was what uh, was called a Gentile. He was a Roman. He was non-Jewish. And when Peter went there, he saw that the Holy Spirit was given to these people. 
And so what that meant was that God was confirming through the Holy Spirit that these Gentiles were now a part of God's people. And yet there was some confusion. What do they have to do now? Do they have to become Jewish? Do they have to become circumcised? Do they have to start observing all these laws or not? Pick it up in in verse 2. This teaching, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas, they were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem. So they went south directionally, but up the mountains to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. There's kind of the, the home base of the Christian church at this point is in the city of Jerusalem. The church sent them on their way, as they, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and said that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. You see, we've got an issue here that requires the immediate attention of the leadership of the church. Appreciate the fact that we've got smart, intelligent, thoughtful, faithful people who love Jesus on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. And so on one side of the aisle, one side of this debate, we have Christians who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, if you know anything about them, they're a relatively small but highly influential group of Jews who emphasized meticulous observance of God's law. If you want to be saved, you've got to obey everything, the big parts and the small parts. That's the means by which you are saved, by which you are righteous before God. You know what the main problem with the Pharisees were? They were delusional. They thought that they were keeping all the aspects of the law, but they were blinded. They missed it. They didn't see that they had a big problem. They were not being faithful to the law. And that's why Jesus has some of the harshest words for these Pharisees, because they're teaching others that they can attain the law. And they are boasting in their status, and Jesus needs to cut them down. And he has some harsh words for them. But as you go through the story of the Gospels, and as you see, all was not lost for these Pharisees, because some of them actually listened. Some of them actually repented, and they started following Jesus. They now had faith in Jesus. And yet old habits died hard with this group. They still had some lingering questions. You say they still had a bent towards believing that in order to be saved, in order to be brought into God's people, yeah, you had to have faith in Jesus plus circumcision, plus obeying all the aspects of the Jewish law. Now, before we dismiss these guys as, as crazies who are missing it, we need to appreciate, again, the cultural moment and where they're coming from. These, these Christians from the parties of the Pharisees, they were not at all opposed to Gentiles becoming Christians. They were like, great, awesome, this is part of the plan. People from all nations, come on in. But here's the deal. You got some hoops you need to jump through. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there's reminders uh, that God has given his people that foreigners might come and join your people. Non-Israelites, non-Jews might become a part of your people. And if they do that, you have to tell them what they need to do in order to be a part of your people. So you had to eat certain types of foods. You had to do certain animal sacrifices. You had to become circumcised. And so essentially, these Christians from the party of the Pharisees, they believed that these Gentiles in the first century who are now putting their faith in Jesus, they thought they also had to become Jewish. They thought that they also had to submit themselves to the regulations of the law, just like they always had. Old habits die hard. So that's one side of the debate. The other side of the debate, we've got 
Paul. By the way, this group over here, we will call them, they believed in a Jesus plus faith. A Jesus plus faith. They thought that when they stand before Jesus and he asks you why you should get into heaven, I should get in because of my faith plus because of my observance of the law, plus because I am circumcised and I've been faithful to all of these things. So that's one side, Jesus plus. So on the other side, again, they were saying something totally scandalous, totally new. People like Paul and Barnabas, they were saying that these Gentile Christians, they were able to be accepted into God's people without becoming circumcised, without observing the Jewish law and submitting themselves to those regulations. They believed that all you needed to be saved was Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Now, I hope you guys can see and appreciate the fact that even though these verses, they're not written to us, they're definitely written for us. Because these questions today, they are alive and well among our community and other communities. What is it that saves me? Is it my faith in Jesus? Or is it faith in Jesus plus, not circumcision of course, but is it my good works? Is it my political affiliation? Is it Jesus plus the fact that I don't go crazy on the weekends, that I live a relatively good Christian life? Let me ask it a different way. Why do you think God loves you? Why does God love you? Does he love you because of the ways you serve him? You know, a lot of you in this room, you're serving in lots of different places. Here in Veritas, on the music team, on the hospitality team. Some of you might lead a small group of college students or high school students or middle school students. Some of you are serving at the Crossing, which is the church Veritas is connected to. And you are serving in the agape ministry for kids with special needs. You're serving in places outside the church. And your fraternities and sororities on exec boards and new member educators and all sorts of different things. I've seen, the, I've seen uh, what are those things that you spend so much time trying to uh, write Resumes, started with an R, thank you. I've seen the resumes. They're long, a list of ways that you're serving. Those are great. But is that why God loves you? Maybe God loves you because of your personal growth over the past few semesters. Is that why he loves you? The ways that you've been learning and growing. I know a lot of your lives are changing. You're learning new things about the Bible. You're making good and faithful choices in your life. Good things, by the way. I've seen a lot of you, you want to follow God in ways that you haven't before. You're wanting to read the Bible more. You're asking people to hold you accountable to the things you look at on the internet or to a certain relationship that you're in. Maybe you've broken up uh, with someone because you knew that that relationship was not what God wanted. Maybe you're taking more steps to be a light on campus in lots of different ways. You're trying to bring people in, show them grace and mercy. That's awesome. Is that why God loves you? Why does he love us? Why does he accept us? Why should we get into heaven? Verse 6, the apostles and the elders, they met. They're in Jerusalem, and they met to consider this question. And after much discussion, this isn't an obvious answer, much discussion, Peter, the apostle Peter, got up and addressed them, said, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. That's a reference to a few years ago when he went to the house of Cornelius. He was that Gentile, that Roman soldier. God, who knows the heart, he showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. 
He did not discriminate between us and them, between Jews and Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that either neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent. Kind of like this. Silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Three insights from from Peter's words. First, notice that our acceptance, anyone's acceptance before God comes at a cost. Verse 9, he, that's God, he didn't discriminate between us and them, between Jews and Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. I think some other translations say God cleansed their hearts by faith. I like that. It gets a little closer to the original Greek word. And so when Peter says that God purified, God cleansed their hearts, he's referring to, to Jesus' crucifixion. You see, for God to accept anyone, their heart, your heart, my heart, needed to be cleansed once and for all of sin. Last Christmas, my dad at the time got me a Christmas present that I wasn't jazzed about. You ever get those? Thanks. I'll use this a lot. Uh, So it hung up in my garage for the longest time, but I finally got down the power washer. So I plugged it in, got the hose all hooked up, and I went to town on my back patio and it was awesome. It was so satisfying to see the work that uh, I was doing. I bet I had swept on my patio at least 20 times the year before, but nothing came close to this. That is no justice to what you see. Kind of the top, you see the green sludge there? Yeah, that's just the normal state of my patio. But below, you can see the clear concrete. Oh, it was unbelievable the change and how dirty it was and the power of that power washer just cleansing up and down, up and down. It was so satisfying. In the same way, the only thing that truly cleanses our hearts is through the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross. Hebrews chapter 10, it's a New Testament book. This author in these verses is comparing human priests to Jesus, the heavenly priest. He says this, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see, in Israel, the priest would come daily and offer sacrifices for all sorts of different things and all sorts of different ways, all sorts of different times of the year for all sorts of different sins again and again and again. It was like me sweeping that patio. Maybe cleaned it for a little bit, but didn't do the job right. Something more was needed. Verse 12, but when this priest, that's Jesus, when he offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When you sit down, you can rest. Nothing more need be done. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so the only way anyone is accepted by God is through the sacrifice of Jesus. So that acceptance, your acceptance, my acceptance, anyone's acceptance is costly. Second insight from Peter in these verses is found in verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is our answer. This is what we need to say to Jesus when we die, what we need to not just say it, just to say it, but to truly believe it in our hearts. You see, Peter is saying the way that anyone, Jew, a Gentile, no matter who you are, the way anyone is brought into the people of God is only by the grace 
of Jesus. See, he bled and he died on a cross to take away the sin of the entire world in the past, today, and in the future, next year, a decade, a hundred years, a thousand years. Through his death and resurrection, all sin is atoned for. It's taken care of in God's eyes. You see, it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing. Not Jesus plus our baptism. Not Jesus plus our good works. Not even a Jesus plus a faithful biblical theology. See, that's the problem with my answer. I said I should get into heaven because I don't deserve it. My answer showed that I was relying on my theology of sin. It was right. It was good. I think that people need to have a good theology of sin, that everybody's a sinner who needs Jesus. But notice my answer went back to me. I don't deserve it. It's technically right, but it had nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with what he did on the cross for me. My answer should have been, Jesus, I need to get into heaven because of what you did for me on that cross. Nothing about me, everything about you. Jesus plus nothing. Final insight to notice from Peter's response is, is found in verse 10. It says, now then, why do you, why do you Christians from the Pharisee party who want to make the Gentiles go through the Jewish law, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? You see, he's speaking out against anyone who would teach others that they need to conform to a Jesus plus faith. These Christians from the Pharisees, they're, they're putting a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles that they could not bear. You see, he's pulling from farming imagery here, and so when an animal like an ox would need to, to plow a field, you'd have to put a yoke around its neck to control it, to make it go where you wanted to, and these things weren't light. I mean, oxen are powerful animals, but even they got tired. And so when Jewish Christians, Christians were holding these Gentile Christians to a Jesus plus faith, the Gentiles couldn't bear it. It's going to weigh them down. It's going to burden them. It's going to keep them from Jesus. But it's not just a problem for the Gentiles. Notice later in the second part of that verse, it's a problem for the Jews as well. It says the Jews, as Peter's ancestors, all throughout time before this, they have never been able to bear this yoke either. They too are weighed down by a Jesus plus faith. Remember those Pharisees. They thought that they were doing good. They're obeying every little part of the law, but they weren't. They were deluded. They believed that they were saved because they and their family had met all of the obligations of the law. They tied the right amounts, performed the right animal sacrifices the correct way, but they missed it. They thought they could carry the burden, but they couldn't. Galatians 2, another of Paul. Paul's New Testament letter says this, if you accept circumcision, in other words, to say, if you accept the Jesus plus faith, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Everyone who accepts circumcision, a Jesus plus of faith, whatever that plus is, is obligated to keep the whole, the entire law. And that's impossible. Be perfect. I don't think I need to convince anybody that nobody is able to be perfect. That's what God expects. And when we have a Jesus plus faith, that's what we're signing up for. Nobody wants that. You can't do it. It's impossible. You know, is that, is that you? Are, are you missing it? Are you delusional? Are you living? Are you clinging to a Jesus plus faith? You know, if, if you're here tonight, 
and you believe or you know people who believe that the heart of being a Christian means that you have to live a certain way or adopt a certain type of theology. You go to church every week. You go to Veritas every week. You go to your small group every week. You go to fall retreat. You, you get over this certain sin. You wear certain clothes. You do certain things. You don't do certain things like smoke or drink or listen to this music or you have to do this, that. If that's what you think being a Christian is, then you're deluded. You're missing it. You're weighed down by a Jesus plus faith. Are you doing this? Are you placing a yoke on other people? Are you expecting other people to adopt a Jesus plus faith? Maybe by the things you say, maybe by the things you don't say. If so, then we've missed it. If we're living a Jesus plus faith, we're going to find ourselves plagued and bound by guilt and by fear. We're going to be haunted by questions like, have I done enough? Is God pleased with me now? Yeah, I had a good day today, had a good week, had a good semester, but what about next semester? What about the next time I mess up? What about that internship coming up? What about this job coming up? The future will always be a threat because you will never be secure. But if you have a Jesus plus nothing faith, then we're free. We're secure. We're always going to have an answer to those questions. Have I done it up? Of course not. No. Let's call a spade a spade. No, I haven't. But Jesus, thankfully, you have. And so you're enough. Is God pleased with me now? Yes. But not because of what I've done, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Is God pleased with me now? Yes. Anybody who has their faith in Jesus, 51%, two steps forward, one step back, a little bit more than not, yes, God is pleased with you because of Jesus. You see, true freedom, lasting freedom comes only when we recognize that boundless and undeserved love that God poured out on us in and through Jesus. He's done enough. Salvation is never going to be found in a Jesus plus a faith. It's never been that way. God has always brought a people to himself by faith alone. Continues in verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the author of the New Testament book of James, and he's the current leader of the church in Jerusalem. Very much a Jewish background here. He said this. He said, brothers, everybody present at the council, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's just another name for Peter. It's his Jewish name. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. He goes on to quote an Old Testament passage from the book of Amos. And that confirms the fact that this isn't something new. That this was the plan all along. To incorporate the Gentiles into his people through faith in him and his promises. It's always been a Jesus plus nothing faith. You see, James sides with Paul. And with Peter, he agrees that it would be wrong to require these Gentiles to adhere to a Jesus plus faith. One last little slight detour here, uh, something that I was learning this I for sure needed to hear and I think we need uh, to hear. After this council, we don't have time. I wish we did, but we don't. After this council, James orders a letter sent back to the church in Antioch to report the decision that the church has arrived in, that the Gentiles are free. They don't have to become Jewish. It's Jesus plus nothing. This is uh, some things that explain how the decision was made. Take a look, verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church 
decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Verse 25, so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. They were going to just explain the decision and be there in person to take questions. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, all-encompassing, to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Notice, notice this, the entire church in Jerusalem, all the elders, all the leadership, the board, if you will, everybody's united on the issue. They're all in agreement that it's Jesus plus nothing. That included the Christians from the party of the Pharisees. Those former hardliners, they recognized the fact that they were wrong. They adopted a more merciful and favorable position to those Gentiles. How did it happen? Well, a couple ways. It came through sharp debate and through humility. Notice the sharp debate here. And so when Paul and Barnabas first heard about what these Christians in Antioch are teaching, notice how they responded. Verse 2, this brought them into sharp dispute and debate with those Christians from the Pharisee party. Verse 7, we read earlier, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. This wasn't a quick discussion either. It wasn't a nice, calm, well, that's interesting, let me tell you my view. No, it probably got heated at points. I bet people were, probably got raised their voices. Maybe some people had to leave the room and cool off. This is an extremely important issue with far-reaching implications, so people were passionately defending these sides. And yet, the entire church came to a decision together. Unified, And that happened because there was humility. See, the Christians from the party of the Pharisees, they didn't storm out of that council meeting. They didn't take their ball and go home. Peter and Paul, they didn't take to Twitter with their outrage and their true thoughts about what they really thought about those other people who disagreed with them. No, there was humility present. There's a willingness to stay there and say, you know what, I might be wrong. Let me, let me try to, rather than I'm over here looking at you, let me try to take a step on this side and really put myself in your shoes and understand where you're coming from. Unless we think this is just an old little kumbaya issue, maybe we'll t- a little give and take here, some sort of compromise. No, there was a clear right and wrong answer here. The, Christian, uh, the Christians from the Pharisees, they were wrong. They got it wrong. They lost. The answer is Jesus plus nothing, not Jesus plus, but they didn't leave. They got behind the decision. They remained committed to the church and got behind the letter because of their humility. I've got some things to learn. I think we've got some things to learn. We need to learn that sharp debate is okay. There are open-handed issues that aren't really worth getting so worked up about. And then there are close-handed issues, issues like this, that at times absolutely need to be have conversations with respectfully, but you can be passionate about it. You can get a little worked up about it. You can get fired up about it. Of course, it takes wisdom to decide what open-handed and close-handed issues are, but we need to be prepared for this and not be surprised when it happens or take it personal when it happens. And when those debates come, the second thing we need to, to learn is that we need to grow in humility as we discuss and as we debate and as we have conversations. I don't often quote Justin Timberlake, but when I do, I put it on a slide. In an interview with Oprah a couple years ago, she was asking him, hey, what's the key to your success? I love what he says here. Love JT. I knew him in his NSYNC days. I don't know if you guys did. Anyway, he said this, to be a master at something, it takes a long time. And for me, the way to do that is to always be a beginner. Think of what would happen in our 
discussions and debates that we have with people, no matter what the issue is, open-handed, closed-handed, what if we approach them as beginners instead of masters? What if instead of white-knuckling our arguments and assumptions, what if, we, what if we just loosened them a bit and we really tried to understand what the other person was saying? Put their argument, their thought, say it better than they could say it. Say it in a way that they go, yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I'd get on board with that. It's hard. It's messy. It's confusing. We're going to fail. I fail. But this is what we need to shoot for. And if and when we fight to do this imperfectly, it's going to get noticed by others. People are actually going to say, wait a minute, you actually cared for me as a person and you didn't equate uh, my view on this issue with me as a person. Wow, that's, that doesn't happen a lot. It's going to get noticed. It's going to draw the people in. They're going to ask, how, how could you do that? I think we're going to have something to say. As the music team comes up, I'm going to address one final question that you might be asking yourselves. If it really is Jesus plus nothing, instead of, of Jesus plus, then why should I do anything good at all? Austin, are you, are you telling me, I'm going to follow the logical conclusions here, if you really think that it's Jesus plus nothing, then technically, doesn't that mean that I can leave here and I can go sleep with anybody I want? My boyfriend, my girlfriend. I can go look at anything I want on the internet. I can smoke anything I want. I can cheat on any test that I want. I can try to get as much money as possible by any means possible. It doesn't matter who I hurt. I can look at as much porn as I want. I can steal whatever I want. I can gossip. I can do whatever I want. Is that what you're saying? Yes. That's what I'm saying. You could leave here and you could do all those things. But would you want to? Would you want to? Knowing all this, remember, you're free. It's Jesus plus nothing. If you have faith in Jesus, there's no yoke around your neck. So go do what you want. But what do you want? Do you know what brings a life of change? You know what's going to change your life? and my life, not just today, but tomorrow and in a year and for the rest of our lives, you know what's going to change that? Grace. Grace is what brings forth our obedience. God's grace changes those things that we want. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we adopted Jesus plus nothing of faith, 51%, imperfectly, but a little bit more than not, then we have access to its grace, his grace, it's ours. And because we have it, that's why we want to be faithful. We want to do those things, not so that we get God's grace, but because of it, we fight that sin, whatever it is, because we have God's grace. Grace changes our lives. The things we do are an overflow of that. And so what do you have? Do you have a Jesus plus faith or a Jesus plus nothing faith? If you've got a Jesus plus faith, put it down. Let it go and turn to Jesus because all you need when you stand before him is nothing. Nothing except his grace. Believe that. Amen.